What was that moment like coming off of, you know, having this collection at Perry Ellis, being this young designer, and then taking this role on at this very, you know, huge European house? So Vuitton had become this huge luxury house, but it wasn't appealing to a young customer. It wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. Yeah. It had no cred, it had no clout, it had no nothing. What it had was this historic sort of monogram. So Mr. Arnaud had this idea that he, he wanted someone to come in and shake it up. Hello and welcome to High Low with Emrata. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. And for those of you who might just be joining us for the first time, let me just give you a quick rundown of how the show works. So every Tuesday and Thursday, I put out new episodes of Hilo with Amrata. On Tuesdays, I do a feature-length interview with culturally relevant guests. We've had La Roach, Julia Fox, Lauren Gray, Donatella Versace, Mark Jacobs. On Thursdays, we do Emrata Asks, where I do a deep dive into a topic that has been on my mind. Sometimes it's related to current events, a recent interview, or just something that I am thinking about. If you want a little exclusive extra dose of Hilo with Emrata, um, it's actually one of my favorite things we do with the show. We have a subscription episode that comes out once a week on Thursdays um, where I play your voice notes that have been submitted from listeners and respond to them and really kind of like continue the conversations we've been having um, or things that have come up between guests or on the solo episodes. So um, please check that out. If you want to hear what you're missing, use the free trial feature on Apple Podcasts. Today we have on someone I'm I've been lucky enough to know for kind of a minute now. Um, Mark and I met, I think, right after I'd filmed Gone Girl. We were introduced by the stylist, Katie Grand, and she had kind of hyped him up to me, and he ended up putting me both in his campaign and his show. And it was really when fashion people didn't fuck with me. So Mark was just always has always been consistently the same person, which is to say that he is lovely. He is a true artist um, coming into the spring studios for fittings. It's always been an experience, um, this like amazing kind of collaborative, magical feeling five days before a show. There's no clothes ready and there's people sewing buttons on and talking about the order of things. And, and then um, magically it all comes together exactly on the dot usually 6 p.m. The show's never late and he closes the doors. What was really fun about um, researching for this episode is just learning so much about Mark's, you know, iconic history. And I will describe some of those things in the intro. Let's get into it. Mark Jacobs, right after this. Stay tuned for more High Low with Emrata. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. 
today on the show on High Low with Amrata, we have Mark Jacobs. I think that why I'm so excited to have you on here is because you've been somebody who has had an incredible balance between artistry and business, which is extremely rare. And you've been able to stay culturally relevant through both of those channels, through a bit incredible business and also through your creative process for decades, which is so impressive to me. We were just talking about your grunge-inspired collection for Perry Ellis in 1992, which kind of changed fashion completely, put you on the map, and also got you fired, which I yes. think is a really interesting thing. And then you were um, at Louis Vuitton, obviously, as a creative director for 16 years. Yeah. And then, of course, Marc Jacobs, your own line, which you've done incredible collaborations through the years. You have continued to innovate and raise the bar. Your latest brand, Heaven, um, your 2023 spring collection, Heroes. Um, I think that people overuse the word icon these days, but you are truly an icon. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Flattered. Okay, well, it's all true. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you. How does it feel? It feels fine. You know, I think I've decided because I'm 60 that I should feel different or old or whatever. So so I kind of made up my mind and I think I've just like done a number on myself, but I feel fine. I'm doing the same thing that I did last year or the year before that. You know, I get up, I go to work. I mean, I probably use more hair dye than I ever have and maybe a little bit more beard dye than I ever have. <laughs> And I certainly could use a gym and a trainer, but uh, other than that, I'm fine. I'm good. It's not to say that 60 is old, but you do not look 60. Well, I had a facelift last year too. I want to talk to you about the Go facelift. Go ahead, let's talk How about was it. it? It was amazing. I mean, I actually, it wasn't like it was something I was dying to do. I think it was last year, or maybe it was the year before. It was two years ago now, I think. But Charlie, my husband, who certainly didn't need a facelift, had it in his mind that we, or that he wanted a facelift. So when I asked him what he wanted for his birthday, he said, I want a facelift. So I was like, okay, well, if you do it, I'll do it. So we <laughs> thought we would get like a couple's facelift. Like, Fun. you know, some couples get massages together. We thought we'd get facelifts together. So we interviewed a couple of doctors. And then the one that we fell in love with was Dr. Giacono, who is amazing. And he's become a very good friend. And we thought like, oh, could he do both of us on the same day? And he was like, yeah, if that's what floats your boat, I'll do it, you know? And then it turned out I couldn't do it then. Okay. So, so I did it afterwards, shortly after Charlie did. And the recovery is intense, no? It wasn't though. It was like, so he's uptown. Um, I stayed at his office one night with the nurses so they could observe like everything. And and then I moved into the Carlisle. I mean, I did, we did such a number. We made it so cinematic and theatrical. I bought a cheap headscarf from like Zittimer and I tied it around my face and put big, dark Gucci glasses on. And You, you know, were in character. I, I, yeah, I just, you know, it was all for Instagram. Like I just wanted to do, like have these images for Instagram. Mm -hmm. So I went into the hotel. And then of course, during the four days of my recovery, I, you know, did selfies and I did a selfie in the um, uh, hyper barrack chamber, oh, right. which was really great for recovery. I mean, it really accelerated recovery. But I had a nurse with me and she like monitored, you know, my painkillers so that I wasn't naughty with my painkillers. You know, it was very well done. And also that I had like proper attention and then I could run over to his office and he could look at the healing. And, and all of it was really easy and good. And, you know, I, four days at the Carlisle watching movies, I mean, it sounds fab. It was fab. Yeah. And then I was like really happy with the results. I was really glad I did it. I feel like body modification is something you've always been interested in. 
anything modification. Yeah. I remember when you guys had the Halloween costumes where oh, you yeah. did the prosthetics and you were um, like female body. You were a female body I builder. was a female body yeah. builder. And, he, and we were like kind of 1970s, 1980s. And we had these costumes made. I mean, they were all, you know, they were foam costumes that we had done by this incredible costume uh, shop in New York who's done costumes for me before. And, you know, I just love role play, character acting, and like creating a character and getting very into it. You know, we called ourselves Larry and Stacy. I remember And I had it. these fingernails and I, like my hand movements were very much who Stacy would be. And like even the Ziploc bag that I had with my makeup so that it didn't go directly in the show. Like I got so into the part, you know? You became Stacy. I was Stacy for the night, yeah. I read somewhere that you um, have said you could have seen yourself as a performer in another life. Totally. And you love theater. Love, love theater love performing. I mean, I think fashion is performance too. It's like, you know, I think entertainment has a lot of facets. It could be writing, it could be music, it could be fashion. I mean, I when we put together a show and we have this runway show, you know, it's to me, it's a seven minute piece of live theater. It has all the emotion, it has all the costuming, it has the hair, the makeup, the casting. So what makes it different than a show? It's a show. Which I think now in this day and age has actually given you a really specific, because the kind of business side of fashion shows has faded, right? With the rise of the internet, with Instagram, you don't need to have it. The necessity of it from a business perspective is different. So it is really about leaning into the performance, which you've done so well. Yeah. I mean, I think we have a CEO at our company now who is incredible and I adore him. His name is Eric and he understands the importance of the runway and what we do not it's not a business in terms of dollars and cents what he expects from us is a story every six months or four months or five months whatever it is he expects a story and one that inspires people within the company who do make the products that are commercial so it takes I mean, there's still just as much pressure to perform on a creative level, but we don't have the pressure to perform on a sales level. Right. And I think, honestly, my feeling about high-end fashion, it should be scarce. It shouldn't be, you know, hugely available. And there should be no wastage. When you're making expensive clothes, you don't want to see like these dresses hanging on wire hangers on the right. markdown rack, you know, or overproduced or whatever. Like, I feel that what we're doing really makes sense with the like kind of high-end fashion statement kind of idea. Totally. I'm thinking about just the evolution of magazines and how, you know, now every you're talking about making images for the internet and for Instagram. And it's like this beautiful book that, you know, used to come out every month that just doesn't have the same value. But what is happening now is that there really are beautiful books being created. And then there's sort of the other side of it, which is just a bunch of images for the internet, for Instagram, for TikTok, whatever. And I feel like you have started this new model that really makes sense that allows the preservation of this traditional type of fashion show and creative process that, you know, other brands are sort of struggling to find that balance. You know, I don't know if we're lucky or they're lucky, but I mean, there's huge brands that, or I hate to call them brands when they make a luxury product, but um, I, don't, I hate to say product when it's luxury, you know, like all those things sound very cheap. But I guess when I think about my experience, like say at Louis Vuitton, you're talking about like, this storied house that has always made 
luxury products. And so, and then if you look at Dior or you look at Givenchy or you look at Prada or you look at uh, Bottega or those brands have like such a deep, deep, deep history of making luxury things. And I think they're, they've all been very wise in getting younger, more interesting designers, more creative designers to do what they need them to do. But I think it's very different when you're not one of those like houses in Europe, you know? So like, it's very atypical, like America or the US doesn't really have luxury brands, you know? And I think other than like Ralph Lauren or Michael Kors, you know, we we just don't have like, I mean, there's a lot of young designers yes. who are super creative and talented, but you don't have old historic houses like you do in Europe. Well, I mean, I think this really brings me sort of, I wanted to talk to you about your beginning days into fashion, also just growing up in New York City and sort of performance and how that played into what you ended up doing. But, you know, Marc Jacobs has become sort of a central American designer in a lot of ways. You know, when I was in school at Parsons, or even before, when I was in the High School of Art and Design, what American fashion looked like was Halston, Calvin Klein, Perry Ellis, uh, Donna Karen wasn't yet on her own, but Anne Klein, Halston, Calvin, Ralph, and they were the big American designers and they all had licensees and like huge, like they were huge. Now, I don't know if they were huge in Europe, right? but, but they as were. a kid in high school, these were like the equivalent of famous European designers, only they were American. And I think at a certain point that just changed. Calvin was no longer at his, you know, company, he, he sold his company, or I think he sold his company, or he left his company. And Donna Karen no longer was at her company. Like, so all of a sudden, so there was just Ralph, you know, right. or, or Michael. Michael Kors kind of took over. But you said at some point, I think, like, I wasn't an American designer. I wasn't a French designer. I was just... A designer. Yeah, which well, I thought was interesting. What was it like? Give a little bit of a picture, because Louis Vuitton obviously has become something that I think was very different from when you started. What was that moment like coming off of, you know, having this collection at Perry Ellis, being this young designer, and then taking this role on at this very, you know, huge European house? Yeah. Well, we can talk about this on lots of different levels. Yeah. So I was a nervous wreck because I was, it was very daunting. Like, what do you, you know, like, how do I do this? And again, looking at the time when this all happened, I think I have a very good take on it. I, re I forget a lot of things, but this in particular, I remember. Tom Ford was at Gucci and he was doing this incredible job at remaking Gucci from an old, you know, loafer with a snaffle bit to this hot brand that like Madonna was wearing and everybody wanted. And, you know, so I know that Mr. Arnaud, the head of LVMH, was looking at what happened with Gucci and saying, well, if Gucci can do that, Louis Vuitton could do it. Now, Louis Vuitton never, they didn't have a classic loafer. They they had bags with right. a classic monogram. You know, mm -hmm. that was what made it identifiable. So Vuitton had become this huge luxury house, but it wasn't appealing to a young customer. It wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. Yeah. It had no like cred, it had no clout, it had no nothing. What it had was this historic sort of monogram. So Mr. Arnaud, had this idea that he, he wanted someone to come in and shake it up and design and do. And I and at that point, were you sort of like, 
a bad boy? <laughs> like what? Well, I wasn't really a bad boy. I was yeah. really a good boy. Yeah. I mean, well, again, this this could depends what you're talking Personal, about. Personal, fashion wise, right. right? I mean, I was very naughty mm -hmm. in terms of like my craziness and my partying and all of that. Yeah, I was, you were at like Studio Fifty Four at fifteen or something, right? Yes, that, that was a sixteen, time. but that was that. I was less naughty then. Okay. So I might have been in clubs for, you know, a lot of my youth, but it sort of accelerated my drinking, my drugging, et cetera. But when I went to Vuitton, I was very excited about it. And I, the first presentation I made to them, I was like, well, I believe that Vuitton could be menswear, womenswear, accessories, jewelry. And I, you know, I kind of drew it all out and gave them examples of what like a Louis Vuitton watch would look like and what a Louis Vuitton raincoat would look like. And and Mr. Arnault loved the presentation and he thought I was the right person for the job. I'm sure it didn't hurt that Anna Winter was like totally on my side. And and he, I think, you know, really respected her opinion. So I got the job. And then that was like crazy beginning because they had no idea like that we needed sewers and we needed- How old were you? I just didn't want to get a, oh God, paint a picture. Oh God, how old was I? Well, 92 is grunge, right? So yes. I had to have been- I want to say it was- 97, yeah, January 97. There you go. Yeah. So I went there and, you know, there was no, my partner and I went there, Robert, who was, you know, partner. Duffy. And yes, Duffy, who, you know, started the whole business for us and- For Marc and, Jacobs. And, and also was responsible for hiring me way before there was a Marc Jacobs brand, you know, when I was much younger, right out of school, Parsons. Anyway, so Louis Vuitton, I'm there, we're sitting there, we start, we're like in this building way out of Paris and we're like La Défense it's called. And we're like, so what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> and like, how do we make this work? Like we have to find people to work with us. We have to build a team. We have to get a studio. We have to find people to sew, make patterns, et cetera. And so we did. And then we kind of had a, a date for So like, they didn't even have that infrastructure? No. Why not? <laughs> because each of the LVMH brands operates separately. So okay. Dior, remember again, Dior was a couture house. So they had an atelier that was started in 1948 or 50, whatever. I don't know what year it was, but like all of their other brands were used to making couture and ready to wear, but Vuitton never had it. So wow. we had to go in and start it and mold it and make it. And then we had From our the bottom up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was crazy, but you know, I ran into Peter Copping who was there from the beginning and he was at um, Steve's funeral and and Camille Michelli, who was part of my original team, and she was, now she does Pucci, Peter's at Balenciaga, but we were all kind of, not all of us, but a few of us were there, and they were, you know, our original team that were sitting in the Rue de Bac in an apartment, which we made into a studio. Like, it was so crazy to think that it was that disorganized right. and like that. Well, and that this kid came from America and had to like whip it, it into shape. It was so naive. Yeah. You know, we were so naive. And then it grew and then they owned a shoe factory and they built a shoe factory. And, you know, it sort of evolved over 16 years right. into this fully, you know, then we had a little atelier for, you know, made to measure. And then we, so it all kind of evolved, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. We will be back with more Mark Jacobs right after this. Yeah. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. Do you think that's a central part of your creative process is sort of having that freedom and that ability to have a blank space and start from nothing? Like I've been to some of your fittings before <laughs> show, like four days before shows and, you know, the clothes are still coming together, vision's still coming together. And it's this really intuitive, instinctual process. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of me, I speak to my shrink about this all the time, is that I believe that somebody else does it better. Somebody else is more organized. Somebody else has a vision that's so clear that they they spend months executing that vision that they know has to happen. And it's not my process. It's like as much as I wish it were, it just isn't. Our process is one that's like, it evolves. and And I'm open to it changing up until the last minute. I'm up for a long dress becoming a mini dress, you know, like it's, if that's the way you feel it at the end, like I know that it causes me a lot of stress, mm -hmm. not having the clarity that I wish I had, but it also allows for a lot of really wonderful last minute things. Well, you can be nimble, right? And you can be inspired and you're not sticking to a book. Yeah, yeah but everything comes with a price, you know? Totally. It's just so funny, you know, <laughs> sitting here and you have these decades of incredible successes and you're still questioning your creative process and thinking that somebody's probably doing it better. It's, I mean, I'm sure I understand from your internal life how like much you suffer probably. It's but, part imposter syndrome, which right. I hate saying because everyone in the world goes around now saying Yes, I just did an episode about syndrome. imposter syndrome. And, <laughs> well, it's like, yeah. it's like narrative. And I, I don't know, there's just so many words. It's so funny. They really have a short lifespan, which I guess is like everything now, whereas like you hear it so much that it, people are like, oh, on to the next. Mm -hmm. It's like the current emoji that's popular or the like totally. everything has this sort of this huge impact and then it's sort of the short lifespan. But do you feel like you're sorry to say to use the term, but imposter syndrome sort of motivates you? So that's that double-edged sword part of it is that like, I think fear and insecurity and self-doubt and like all that stuff, it motivates me in a way. It Fear is a huge motivator. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like it makes you more courageous though, because one of the things that I was, you know, reading about your childhood and your adolescence in New York, like you were always Mark. You were always yourself. You were always this person who had a very specific vision for yourself. And I know that you were the oldest sibling, yeah. right? Yeah. So you were kind of in charge. You ended up being in charge, right? Yeah. A bit because Much of my dismay. <laughs> situation with your mother. mother yeah. yeah. And um, your grandmother really like encouraged this person to 
connect to fashion and become yeah so have you has it just been something that was sort of always inside of you this like not just the idea of expressing yourself and being an artist obviously i think that's true but kind of the ability to be like this is who i am and i'm going to play with this thing and i'm going to put myself out in the world I loved what you said about never coming out or never being in. You were just like, this is who I am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were moments, it's it's complicated because now it's, it's like, of course I have a certain strength in saying things that I think I had to temper in different situations. And I'm, I'm very aware of like the arc of who I am and what I was and who I'll always be. Yeah, so I think- What do you mean? What do you think the arc is? Well, I think I've, I went through like, you know, I was bullied as a kid. And so I kind of hid who I was, sort of. Like I was never very good at hiding who I was because I also had that feeling of, fuck you. I'm not, I'm not changing for you, you know? So I hated being bullied for who I was, but I wasn't willing to change who I was. That said, I was in situations where I would like lower my voice or talk less or sit on my hands. Because the fear, I don't know, there was a movie, Zelig, and I, I felt like I was that chameleon that would change like out of, out of self-preservation. I don't know how successful it was, but and why I found myself in a sports bar, I don't know the first thing about baseball or football or anything, but I knew that I had to change my behavior and the way I spoke, because I was sitting in between two heterosexual men in a, sure. in a sports bar. But I didn't really have to, because those two people brought me to it, and they knew full well that I, you know. Anyway, it, it was just what I, the stories I would tell myself is like, you're not safe here, you need to do something to protect yourself. But but which probably other, was true. Which was probably true. A lot true, of the time as well. But I was, but I was still in New York City, right. which is a bubble. And it was just, it was the things, I didn't have a lot of people, like a lot of sounding boards maybe during parts of my youth. So so I the stories I told myself were like, you can do this, you can change a little bit and you'll be fine. And maybe that's true, maybe that wasn't true. No matter what kind of bullying, no matter what kind of, insecurities I had, like I wasn't really gonna change, you know, who I was mm -hmm. for anybody. And I, I think with years of experience, I felt more fuck you than ever and more like, I don't really give a shit what you think of me, you know, like, and it almost became like a challenge. Like I would go further, mm -hmm. like, you thought I was like this before, wait till you see me, in the, you know, this get up or mm -hmm. whatever, but you know, it's just a game. And would you say you've applied that to designing? I mean, I'm thinking obviously yes. of the grunge collection and yeah. this sort of reaction, right? Everyone was like, holy shit, this is genius. But then it, the world basically wasn't ready for it. It was like this. I think a, a lot of times with Katie, we would get to this place, you know, I'd be insecure. I'd call her up or, or text her and say like, I don't know. I think, you know, uh, and like you'd be very hesitant and insecure, which I still am and always probably will be. But like when we work together and she knew that she knew my arc and and how it would go and there would come a point where there was just like something clicked and i'd say like you know what i really don't know whether people will like this love this or hate this but we have to like this is what we have to do we're just going to do it and fuck it and you know there would come that moment and then it would be like then it would be once the fuck it moment came <laughs> then we had to make make it all happen through the casting and the hair and the makeup and but like the the designing part was really like i don't really care what anybody thinks this is what yeah. we're doing you know i mean and it's worked incredibly well 
I think people I care about, I mean, people, not that I care about, people whose opinion I respect leave the show feeling moved. Sometimes they feel really blown away by what they see in terms of clothes. Other times they're just moved or, you the know. The experience but, of the show is something. But, yeah, yeah, but I think they leave with something. And mm -hmm. I think I think it's never um, indifferent. You know, there's, yes. you know, that's what we want to avoid at all costs, so. I read something about how you had this craze around you of this young designer at one point in your life. And then I think it was in this New York Times profile I was telling you I read. Um, and then you're like, oh, now I'm, you know, I'm not that, but I'm something else. And I have the privilege of still doing this, which I thought was a very humble and nice thing to say, because in my mind, you know, I, and I told you I wanted to talk about heaven and really why I'm interested in that is on both the artistic and the business side, the way you have been able to connect to the zeitgeist kind of throughout your career, it doesn't, it wasn't that like you had a moment. It's like you've continued to kind of evolve and reinvent yourself on both sides, right? Creatively and also just as a brand. Yeah. What do you attribute to that to? Like, how has that, how does that happen? Because that's what everybody wants and not everyone can well, do it. I'm not convinced that on the collection, like the high end, that we really connect to the zeitgeist or even to fashion. I think we tell a story and I think that what we present is creative, et cetera. In my mind, I wish it were more uh, relevant or current or connected to the zeitgeist. Yeah, I do wish that there was perhaps more relevance in terms of the appeal of the collection and what I'm really grateful for is that a few years ago, actually now I forget with COVID, it's more than a few. Uh, there was a sweatshirt that had uh, my name misspelled in like kind of handwriting. And it was like a counterfeit Mark Jacobs sweatshirt. And it was done by this girl, Ava. And we, we met with Ava and I just thought like it was so cool. And she had done another one too. There was two that were kind of counterfeity and that was her thing. And I, we talked about doing something and you know, uh, I asked her if she would be interested in doing something with us. And it was really undefined. We didn't really know what it would be, but she expressed interest. And, and I think at that time she was still working in some capacity at Helmut Lang. And she came to Mark Jacobs, the company, which is also weird for me to say my I own name. I was going to ask you about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> and she kind of defined this thing that what she wanted to do. And then we talked about a name and then it became heaven. And it's funny. I, I think that she was comfortable that I've, I've myself and, and some of my friends always say heaven to describe something that we love, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, she was good with it. And then she, she said about like bringing together a community of creatives that were friends of hers or people whose work she was interested in. And she looked at my past and my friends from the past and their creative output. And she was inspired by that. And just like she kind of built this heaven thing into, you know, with Harley doing pictures and people that we were all interested in from back then, from currently, you know, and it's been great. And I think how we connected with this zeitgeist, is that the word mm -hmm. you used? It was is that what we did was we allowed and, and encouraged Ava to do what she thought was right. And, and, and I can't say that I'm creatively involved in those decisions, I'm not. What I did was allow her and encourage her to do what she felt 
would make heaven this great thing. And that's what she's done. That's so interesting. I think that you are somebody who has such a specific vision and you've been this creative director. You, Mark Jacobs, as you said, I mean, it's a it's a name that's been knocked off a million times. Like people, you know Mark Jacobs. It's really one of the first brands you built. Everybody now knows that, you know, a name is a brand, a person is a brand, but you really kind of did that before people understood it that way. But you also have this incredible inclination towards collaboration, which I've watched with Katie Graham, the stylist that you've mentioned a few times. And just in general, really, you know, ex- being a curious person who I know like very much is interested in art and theater and culture in general and is paying attention. And then, you know, yes, it's, it is you, but you also are really great at collaborating. I think everything's a collaboration. I mean, when I look at what it takes for us to make the clothes, there's a collaboration with the pattern makers. We give them a sketch, they interpret it, they come back with their interpretation. We go back to them with what we want to correct. It's a collaboration. The pattern makers with the women who sew, that whether men or women who sew or tailor, that's a collaboration. It's like the whole equals the sum of its parts. And sometimes you reach out and bring all these creatives into this cake, you know, or these parts. And I think, I think, you know, I don't know why I just got this flash of you against a red background in a skunk coat mm-hmm. like that David Sims shot. And I thought the photographer, this creative genius of a photographer, David Sims, you, who was modeling and acting, you know, came into like my little world. And, you know, there's that picture, that like, it's like everything is a collaboration. Yes. And yes, I do really, I really, really value people in other creative fields because I think it makes what we or what I do in fashion so much more rich and so much more exciting. So I love people who are, you know, making music today, pop culture or then artists, contemporary artists, and then of course models, actors, and photographers, and filmmakers. It just makes all of our jobs so much richer to have more facets, I think. And I think that, you know, when you make those choices, like you make them instinctively for a reason. And then that person who you've reached out to for this collaboration, what they bring to it. Like, again, I remember the day we did that picture and what you brought to the set was incredible. Oh, thank you. That's But, but it was. What you brought to that show at the Ziegfeld was incredible. You know, that's that energy, that special thing that you feel from people. And sometimes it's it's the work that I see. And like, you can see work from an artist and then be disappointed in the artist thinking like, oh, wow, I really love that, but I wasn't turned on by the person. It rarely happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, typically if I love work, there's a really brilliant person right, behind it. Right, I mean, it's just interesting that kind of instinct and then the insecurity that comes with the second guessing, which I also think is important because then that you know, if you were only trusting your instinct and kind of thinking like, I I know exactly whatever, then it doesn't, you don't rework, you don't edit and it doesn't get better. There's no kind of way to evolve and push yourself. And it's a tough thing for anybody and any, any artist in any space, right? To kind of find the balance of holding your ground and understanding your own vision while also allowing the right amount of input in, which is why I'm so interested in your process. Sometimes I think there's a real exchange of ideas and both sides are very interested in working together. And that to me is a true collaboration. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it could be an artist, it could be a model, it could be a photographer. When two creatives really wanna work together, 
and it isn't like a battle of egos or something. I think something really great can come of it, you know? You've had so many amazing collaborations. But, but it's I'm one of really the things, interested yeah. in collaboration. I'm not right. interested in somebody like sending me a, a drawing and then I slap it on a handbag. Like, it's just like, that's not to me a collaboration. Right, you wanna work together, you wanna have yeah. the conversations, you wanna, yeah. Yeah, sure. We'll return with more Mark Jacobs right after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to High Low with Emrata. So from a non-creative side of collaboration, you mentioned your partner, business partner, Duffy, that yes, you worked with. Robert. And he was the first one who sort of said, like, let's make Mark Jacobs, uh, or I don't know, tell me about that kind of moment. I was in college, mm -hmm. Parsons School of Design. The senior class, like your senior project was to put on this fashion show of a spring look and a fall look. And uh, so I was part of that show. I won these awards. I won the Perry Ellis Gold Thimble Award. I won the Chester Weinberg Gold Thimble Award. I won the J.C. Penney Student of the Year Award. So I was like loaded up with awards and I was definitely like the star student, you know? So, and I didn't decide that they did, although I would agree. And they have this gala dinner, like a black tie dinner mm -hmm. where they have this fashion show is held. And Robert Duffy, who is working for a Seventh Avenue house, a dress house making very 80s kind of dynasty dresses. He saw my work and knowing that the people who owned the company he worked for wanted to start a kind of contemporary line. That was that was a word that's sort of gone. Yeah. There was there was this weird sort of department store like setup where you had Junior, which was very young and juniory, and then you had Bridge, which was about cheaper clothes or mid-price clothes, but they were for work, and then contemporary, which was like adult clothes, but with a young attitude. And so it was a funny so time. So interesting. Yeah. Right. So they were starting this line that was going to be contemporary. And uh, Robert convinced them to hire me. I had, no, I mean, I had no experience other than being a stock boy and a salesperson at Charvari. I'd know, oh which God. was a store. Mm -hmm. um, and he convinced them to hire me. And again, Way before Vuitton happened, I was I ended up like in 37th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue in a studio probably the size of this room with no one. I was alone. I didn't know how to buy fabric. I didn't know how to find a sewer. I didn't know how to find a dress. So I was like, oh my God. But I asked people, I you know, sometimes when I'm in a situation where students ask questions, I said, well, the way I did it was I asked people and I wasn't ashamed to not know. I was like, how do you do this? How do you how do you make an appointment with a fabric house? How do you how do you find seamstresses? How do you look for, you know, how do you interview people? I just asked people. I, I really was shameless. I was like, I don't know how to do this. Tell mm -hmm. me how to do it. I mean, it's so important. It's I think a lot of the time we posture and then we end up hurting ourselves, right? Especially in those early days. Yeah. So then what happened, Mark? Was it an instant success? Was Mark Jacobs a No. Okay. No. I mean, we got a lot of I got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm which for me is bliss. I mean, that's what I want more than anything in life is attention. You know, I want 
validation and I want to perform. I want people to clap for me. I, you know, I just, in some way or another, like, and again, I don't know if this is exactly psych talk, but you know, that idea of being loved is not the same thing as getting attention. But for me, somehow it is. So it's been somehow it's been braided together yeah, and it's yeah. impossible it's, to discern well, which you know, is love and which is actual. Mm-hmm. Right. Like after after some dinner when you're a kid and you kind of do a magic trick or you sing or you play the piano and like all your family's like clapping for you, you think like, oh, wow. I'm special. Uh, yeah. I'm loved. Yeah. yeah. So you had that with Yes. So you were yeah, like, so we had a lot yeah. of attention. We got a lot of praise. We got a lot of attention. And we sold some clothes, but it wasn't enough. After after a year, a year and a half, it just wasn't enough. And they decided not to continue doing it. So we went from one situation to another, which lasted a minute, and then another situation, which lasted 10 minutes, you know, and until the Periellis gig came. Right. It's really nice to know that it just, you know, doesn't happen like that, which of course is always the story. But I think sometimes people forget that even I, somebody who, you know, has been through that, it's hard to see that in other people and realize, oh, there's so many misses and, you know, trial and error. Yeah. Yeah. What movie was Jamie Lee Curtis in the horror movie that she was in? Was it, was it Friday the 13th? Let's say it was Friday the 13th. So there was this writer for the New York Times and they had reviewed one of my, she's no, Amy Spindler, I think it was, maybe it was Amy mm. Spindler, who's no longer around. So they wrote this review of his show and they said, Mark Jacobs has had more comebacks than Jamie Lee Curtis in a Friday the 13th Oh movie. my God. So, I, which I thought was brilliant because apparently, you know, she had near deaths or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah. But I just love that. I was like, yeah, I have. So we've just found out that actually the Jamie Lee Curtis movie was Halloween. That yeah. the story is still many comebacks is the point. Yeah, I knew it was scary. <laughs> so are <laughs> you going to continue to sort of live that life of... It just, it's the way it, it happens. You know, it's like I... I, you know, kind of like rise to the occasion again. I uh, mean, that's what comes with longevity, right? It's never just a one constant... Maybe it is yeah. for someone. It's just not my story. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it is. I think it's easy to see that from the outside if you're not paying attention and whatever. That could be your perspective. I, I think you're right. I mean, from the outside, it looks very, very different than it does from the inside. But as you're talking to me, the person, I'm just saying like, I don't know. It does seem like somewhere else it's got to be smoother. You yeah, know? I but understand that. It's our story. This is what my story is, is what our story is, right? It's beautiful. Okay, so a new thing I've been doing on the podcast, it's called high-low. Okay. I really am curious for your answers for this. I like high picks and low picks. So whatever you consider lowbrow, highbrow, you get to choose what categories are which. You could start with either. What have you been into in a highbrow capacity or lowbrow capacity? Shitty TV you've been watching, snacks, or, you know, art you've been enjoying, whatever. Oof. So highbrow, clothes shopping at Saint Laurent, clothes shopping at Balenciaga. Love. Uh, is that highbrow? Yeah. That's good, highbrow. Mm-hmm. Lowbrow, mm-hmm. watching a 90-day fiancé before the 90 days. I haven't seen it yet. People so bad, love, it's so good. People love it. Yeah, I'm yeah. one of them. I mean, lowbrow for me, but it's so good, is Burger King, you know, or Popeye's Chicken, but... How I often, haven't had it in so long. I was going to say, how often do you eat? 
Well, lately I've been on a diet, so I haven't, I really haven't had it in a long time. And when I've been cheating, I've been still cheating with like good quality food, maybe. Okay, but if you could, Burger King. Yeah, oh God, would I love a Burger King <laughs> Oh Whopper. no, I'm gonna, t- now you're gonna be craving one for the next couple oh, of days. Oh, I've been craving one for weeks. And oh I was God. Like, <laughs> I mean, Can this be like a birthday present, a Burger well, King Well, I thought burger. about yeah. it, I thought about it, but then I talked myself out of it. Like, even if I was gonna cheat, I thought I should cheat with a good, like good food. I did, I think last week I had like some chocolate covered matzah and I had chocolate covered strawberries okay. for our wedding anniversary. If those are the things that are your guilty pleasures, then like get out of here. That's but, not even bad. But it's not, no, it's not no. so bad. I'm trying to think of other lowbrow things. I feel like Charlie and you have a great balance of that. Like he'll like put on like- a- Oh, oh, Chipotle. So oh. he insists on going to Chipotle for his birthday. So I have tried for years to do something nice and go somewhere nice and take him somewhere special. Nope, he just wants to go to Chipotle. And that's where I proposed to him because- That's so sweet. Well, because I knew that's where he wanted to be on his birthday, so I had to organize that. Oh my God. Yeah. How long have you guys been together? Four years. We just celebrated our four year with fruit and flowers, our fourth year. That's really lovely. Yeah. I I was lucky enough to be at the wedding and I just adore Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. I love him. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute pleasure. I feel like I could talk to you about all, a million other things that we didn't even get to. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mark Jacobs. Such an open, warm person who looks as fabulous as he sounds. There's a lot to talk about there. I think the imposter syndrome stuff that's been kind of a theme of the podcast the last couple weeks, you know, how that nervousness and that insecurity can actually lead to greatness. I think mistrials and errors is another theme that I'm thinking about with Mark. I think just kind of the longevity of his career and what he's built is really interesting to me. Um, And I'd love to hear from all of you about what we talked about today. So go to hilo.fm to submit your voice memos. Those are the ones I use for the subscription episode that comes out every week. If you're not a subscriber, please subscribe. It's really nice way to build community with you all and continue the conversation. We also sometimes use them for the Emrata Asks episode. So even if it doesn't feel like, you know, oh, the perfect thing to submit on theme for this week, please send your voice notes in. If we don't use them this week, we might use them down the line. You never know. So just talk at us. Tell me things. Tell me things. Thank you all for listening. Go to hilo.fm. Can't wait to hear from you all. And I will see you on Thursday with my Emrata Asks episode. Hilo with Emrata is a Sony Music Entertainment, Bitch Era Media, and Something Else production. Our executive producers are me, Emily Radikowski, Matt Raz, and Sarita Wesley. Our showrunner is Matt Raz. Our associate producer is Rachel Choder. Today's episode was engineered by Samantha Gatsik with original music by The Crystal Pharaoh.